so much for inviting me and um, I really have just gained so much from all of the discussions that I've heard and um, can't really contain my excitement about it um, but I really I think my job right now is just to make this bearable for everyone we're almost <laughs> at the end I'll try to make this um, interesting and you can get to the wine as soon as possible um, so thank you to Finton. And I've worked extensively on science on stage more broadly, and on theater and evolution specifically. But until Finton's invitation came, I hadn't thought particularly about contagion in theater. So I'm grateful to him for starting me off on this fascinating path. It dovetails with my evolution work in interesting ways that I have yet to explore fully. It also is quite <coughs> a helpful coincidence that at Oxford we have Professor Sally Shuttleworth's ERC-funded project, Diseases of Modern Life, a truly enriching source of ideas and information, as well as dynamic people who don't mind taking a few hours to talk to me about the concept of contagion. And actually, in a very contagious way, we are now doing, um, largely thanks to, to the seed planted by Finton's invitation, we're doing something called the, um, the Contagion Cabaret, the 20th of June for the Oxfordshire Science Festival. So please come along and join us for that. It, it's going to be lighthearted, but also um, some food for thought. So over the past couple of days, we've been exploring the synergies between plague and performance and the body-to-body -body contagiousness of theater. We've seen how theater is a kind of exposure, a willingness to be infected by performance. And in my studies of theatrical engagements with science, particularly evolution, I've become especially interested in those moments when science is unresolved, doesn't have the answers, the jury is out, like with 19th century understandings of how heredity works, with the early 20th century infatuation with eugenics, 
and with pre-modern synthesis explanations of evolution. Eugenics, for instance, was one of the most contagious ideas based on heredity, but more about social contagion than actual spreading of <coughs> germs and disease. And the spectrum of soft to hard eugenics encompasses both genetics and the concept of contagion. Controlling the nature of the population is the ultimate eugenic fantasy. These kinds of moments seem to me to coincide with, indeed promote and generate and allow an openness an imaginative looseness and creative thinking that finds expression in many art forms. Theater is particularly apt for engagements with contagion because of its reliance on the body, the presence of actors and audience in the same room in live encounter, not just bodily but mind-to-mind -mind infection. Yet, theater has been strangely absent from studies of contagion as a cultural phenomenon. For instance, Carrie Nixon and Lorenzo Cervice's book Endemic, Essays in Contagion Theory from last year, um, great, really interesting, fascinating book, but not much mention of theater at all. Um, Jennifer Cook's similarly wonderful book, Legacies of Plague in Literature, Theory, and Film from 2009, does have a small uh, um, section, a little bit on Artaud and uh, Camus. Um, but apart from that, it's, it's generally been um, less represented. But theater and contagion have come together in so many ways. Think of Sophocles, Oedipus Rex, of the pox so often invoked in Elizabethan theater, or disease in plays by Ibsen and Chekhov. I mean, plague hangs in the air of Uncle Vanya from 1897. There's an epidemic of typhus going on when the play opens. Later on, of course, Artaud makes contagion not just a theme, but a central metaphor and the platform of his thought. Other plays that deal with contagion around this time are Karl Chapek's The White Plague, 1937, and Camus' The Plague, which is currently in revival in London here, adapted by Neil Bartlett, which raises questions such as, what is the public good? And there is Camus' State of Siege from 1948 as well. Tony Kushner gave us a whole new vision of plague in Angels in America. And although it might not be the same type of theater, now we have contagion-based gaming. So, Plague Inc., which is, gives us the title, see if this actually works here, um, of my talk, is a game that allows you to unleash a, quote, sentient mu mutagenic pathogen and, quote, consume humanity. Can you infect the world? The main, the main blurb reads, can you infect the world? Plague Inc. Is, Plague Inc. Plague Inc. is a unique mix of high strategy and terrifyingly realistic simulation. As you can see from... <laughs> I, have a, I have a new openness to sneezing and coughing in theater audiences now after these two days. Um, <laughs> as you can see from the screenshots I'm going to show you, you get to stage worldwide pandemics and rack up millions of deaths. And the best bit is that you do this by choosing the type of plague, a real or fake one, so let's see if there's some examples. There's, there's a yeah, new plague type, the necroa virus. Create the ultimate pathogen. Large swathes of infected tissue lose blood supply and become fatal sources of gangrene. Here is my favorite. Anyone who has ever sat in endless committees, this is exactly what it feels like. A little, <laughs> little worm just bur burrowing into your brain. Um, 
so yeah, so you 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 get these um, options, and uh, you also choose the method of transmission. You choose the symptoms and so on. And my favorite bit, intriguingly, it says on the ad for the game, Brexit events now added into the simulation. <laughs> I'm still not exactly sure what that means, um, but here you have here you have more examples of these these things. Um, Special play types, unknown, unknown. Um, so, yeah, so um, similarly, there's this app called BioInc, Biomedical Plague. Quote, a biomedical strategy simulator in which you determine the ultimate fate of a victim by developing the most lethal illness possible. I did my best sort of American film accent. <laughs> um, create your own plague by upgrading diseases, boosting risk factors, and slowing down your victim's recovery before a team of highly motivated doctors find a cure and save him. <laughs> I like to imagine, I really like to imagine Anton and Arto feverishly playing this game on his phone, putting in a few hours of fun with Plague Inc. on his Xbox Live. It's interesting, maybe we can, oh yeah, here you go, 100 plus biomedical conditions. And you have, the thing is there's actually some medical education value in some of this, it's a bit scary. Build vicious strategies. Um, you get the idea, no, I don't want that yet. It's interesting that Artaud, who coined the idea, the, the concept theater is plague, doesn't feature in the CFP for this conference, as far as I remember. I looked for his name, but perhaps that's because he's implicit in its very title. Um, I am going to talk a bit about him. I'm not going to do what he did, which is apparently he was so emotionally invested in his lectures that he would, he would just throw himself into it. In the end, he would lie on the floor convulsing. I'm not actually going to do that. <laughs> One of the most famous ideas in theater history, uh, theater's plague, revolves around contagion and links performance, not text, directly to it. It figures plague as positive, generative, productive. Artaud declared that, quote, the theater, like the plague, is a delirium and is communicative. And he envisioned a plague-like rebirth of theater through the spiritual freedom, in his words, that it would allow. Theater and plague are alike because they both affect important collectivities, these are his words, and upset them in an identical way. And because, here's a quotation from the book, there's something both victorious and vengeful. We are aware that the spontaneous conflagration which the plague lights wherever it passes is nothing else than an immense liquidization. The plague takes images that are dormant, a latent disorder, and suddenly extends them into the most extreme gestures. The theater also takes gestures and pushes them as far as they will go. Like the plague, it reforges the chain between what is and what is not, between the virtuality of the possible and what already exists in materialized culture. Parenthetically, it's worth remembering that the actress Eleonora Duse, decades before Artaud, wrote that, quote, to save the theater, the theater must be destroyed. The actors and actresses must all die of the plague because they poison the air. They make art impossible. Stanton B. Garner Jr. argues in his compelling analysis of Artaud in relation to Louis Pasteur that for all his resistance to modern medical culture and medicalized language, Quote, Artaud's writing exists in a dialogic relationship with wider cultural discourses and practices that seek to define the body, 
its relation to other bodies, and its possibilities for change and transformation. Achod's writings on contagion may seek to transcend the body through the metaphorics of purification, but the medicalized body produced by modern science shadows this body without organs, in the end limits it at every turn. I think that's a very interesting um, way to look at Artaud in relation to medical discourse. I want to look a bit more at something that's come up again and again, though, in, in, in the sort of fluidity from contagion of a physical or medical nature to social contagion, and look at the mind-body continuum, continuum that's implicit there. But before doing so, um, here's, a little, here's a little little data uh, bites. Um, it's useful to remember that quote, this is from um, Derek Smith, who's a Cambridge um, epidemiologist. 100 years ago, half of all deaths were caused by infectious disease. Half of all deaths. Today, that proportion is down to 25%, mostly because of vaccines, antibiotics, and improvements in hygiene. Of course, new conditions crop up all the time that challenge existing categories of illness and mechanisms of transmission. One is Uphievenheit syndrome, or resignation syndrome, a chilling condition found amongst child refugees in Sweden beginning in the early 2000s. And I've just been reading about this um, recently, so I wanted to include this. There's a, a really good article on this in the New Yorker magazine from last month. So it's a severe and debilitating physical disease akin to a coma, with roots in a psychological condition similar to shock, and it seems to spread through social contagion. The syndrome is said to exist only in Sweden and only among refugees. The patients have no underlying physical or neurological disease, but they seem to have lost the will to live. And this can actually go on for weeks and years even. One patient, a 14-year-old Russian boy, happily living in Sweden with his family, underwent this transition into a coma-like state. Within two weeks of learning, he was to be deported. This is a quotation from that, that article I mentioned. Georgie read the letter silently, dropped it on the floor, went upstairs to his room, and lay down on the bed. He said that his body began to feel as if it were entirely liquid. The really strange thing is Artaud has just used that word in, the, in this passage here, uh, the liquidization. His limbs felt soft and porous. All he wanted to do was close his eyes. Even swallowing required an effort that he didn't feel he could muster. He felt a deep pressure in his brain and in his ears. He turned toward the wall and pounded his fist against it. In the morning, he refused to get out of bed or eat. Within a week, he required a feeding drip through the nostril. He became one of the hundreds of what the Swedes call the apathiska, the apathetic. The illness is still being diagnosed in dozens of children. Last year, some 60 children lost the ability to move and to speak. Not only is this extremely distressing to the families and friends of the patients, but it is a national crisis of identity in a country that has always had an outstanding record on welcoming and caring for refugees. Although it is evidently not something you can physically catch, its spread is alarming and provides disturbing evidence as to the nature and power of social contagion, as well as the deep interconnectedness of mind and body. So that interconnectedness will keep coming up in what I want to talk about now. <coughs> how theater participated in a wider discourse about processes of transmission that were much debated in the 19th century, a period when there was often this blurring of the line between heredity on the one hand and contagion on the other. All sorts of theories abounded as to how things got passed on, usually encompassing either heredity or contagion or a bit of both. 
As Marvin Carlson points out in an article on Ibsen, Strindberg, and telegony, telegony being psychic heredity, this was the period of widespread scientific speculation, yet little secure knowledge as to what Carlson says are the, the, is the process by which new organisms acquire their characteristics. Still largely a mystery then, at that time, though all major biologists of the century advanced theories about it. Some speculated that it was a combination of internal and external mechanisms, heredity and acquired characters. So contagion is a close relative of evolution in this respect, at least in this period. Indeed, Weissman coined the term telegony in 1892 for this, in his view, spurious idea of quote unquote, uh, quote, offspring at a distance. So this, I should explain, this is where certain physical characteristics of the partner of an unconsummated and illicit liaison appear in the later legitimate child of another father. You got that? <laughs> Ibsen's The Lady from the Sea from 1888 expresses this idea, as do all those plays of Strindberg that obsess about the legacy of the father. It's true that a lot was unknown about mechanisms of transmission from the point of view of heredity, but certainly mechanisms of contagion were becoming much better understood in the second half of the 19th century. Koch's postulates in the 1880s, for instance, Metchnikoff, Pasteur, Lister, and so on. By 1900, my microbiologists had identified the microbial agents responsible for typhoid fever, diphtheria, tetanus, dysentery, and other major diseases, though other epidemic diseases like cholera, smallpox, and influenza continued to cause devastation. Germ theory had a major impact on social and political theories. We've certainly been hearing about that in, in some of the papers earlier. And it influenced culture more widely. As Garner writes, tropes of contagion, pathology, inoculation, and immunity received new currency in the theater especially. The social and political attempts to contain contagion abounded, for instance, in legislation like the Contagious Diseases Acts. Now, although no one ever stages his works now, Eugene Breer married medicine and social problems and was quite a hit in his day. For instance, he dramatized with a new frankness how syphilis gets, really gets passed on in his play Damaged Goods from 1901. In particular, he got interested in breastfeeding as a mechanism of disease transmission, putting an entire scene into damaged goods. I'll give you this. Here's a wonderful poster for this. An entire scene in which a syphilitic father who has had a child despite his doctor's explicit instructions not to um, get married for three or four years, he only waited six months and um, palmed off his bride with the story that he, had he was um, recovering from tuberculosis. So that issue came up in the previous panel um, about uh, revealing uh, disease. So that's there already in damaged goods. So there's this scene in which the syphilitic father um, tries then to buy off the wet nurse to keep nursing the infected baby because the baby is now, they suspect it has, it has um, got syphilis. And so then the nurse cottons onto this, she gets very suspicious, um, and that is the core of the scene. Um, Bria also wrote an entire play from around 1897 about wet nursing. It's called Les Remplaçantes. The, the replacers, the wet nurses, which exposes the corrupt wet nursing system in France. The emphasis on breast milk as a source of contagion contrasts sharply with the idea of its life-giving qualities, as well as with the time-honored literary and cultural status it held as a source of moral virtue and as the epitome of maternal love. And this is captured in another play, 
by, this is by James A. Hearn, H-E-R-N-E, um, in his 1890 play, Margaret Fleming, when the heroine, suddenly rendered blind by the traumatic revelation that the servant at whose deathbed she is sitting was in fact seduced by Margaret's philandering husband, gropes her way toward the crying newborn whose mother has just died, takes it in her arms, and in full view of the audience, gives it her breast. So here's the wife of Hearn, um, who kind of made, she created the role. The play perished, the play itself perished in a fire, but she then, about three decades later, reconstructed it for a 1919 publication. So it's a very strange status as a text because that's all we have to go on. And so when you cite Margaret Fleming, you're citing this remembered version from decades later. And it just, that deserves scrutiny on it just for that itself. But it's also a really interesting play. It is very obscenic, um, but it actually still works. There was a very um, compelling production, apparently. I just have read about it, um, but about 2009 in New York City. And you can see the infant being, being held there in the background. And Margaret has gone blind. Um, and she's, 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 got to, you know, she's got to deal with this, this terrible shock, two sources of terrible shock at the same time. And it's just it's too much. But it's not just the breastfeeding on stage that's remarkable about this, but the intriguing and popular misconception that a latent physical tendency, in this case toward blindness, could be triggered by a single event. And so suddenly, I mean, she's suddenly blind. Again, mechanisms of transmission are at issue, and the medical facts are deliberately vague. Similarly, the play Man and His Makers by Louis N. Parker and Wilson Barrett reflects, and these, the ones I'm going to talk about now are all from around the same kind of 1890s um, period, reflects 19th century fears about how addiction to alcohol and drugs might be passed around. The hero at first recoils from the implication that he is doomed to inherit and pass on his family's addictive tendencies, <coughs> but then defiantly bounces back from his self-imposed social exile and gets married, has healthy children, and lives happily ever after. Henry Arthur Jones explores similar ideas in his play The Physician, though with a tragic ending. And Elizabeth Robbins boldly explores female al alcoholism in her unpublished play The Silver Lotus. So each play captures not just ideas of transmission, but the way mind and body interact within disease. The plays recognize their inextricable quality. Almost the poster child for such dramatic speculation as to mechanisms of transmission is, of course, Henrik Ibsen who makes poetic use of contagion, the baths become, becoming contaminated with infusoria in an enemy of the people, the fever being passed through the breast milk in the master builder. Ibsen begins with a medical idea and moves quickly away from its medical context to focus on wider social implications. He moves medicine into metaphor with incredible speed by omitting most of the medical facts. Thus, ensuring that his plays remain valid long after medicine has actually moved on. A Doll's House does this too. Look at the drafts of the play, and you see how he gradually tones down and almost sheds the medicine. So Dr. Rank originally had a lot more to say about his mysterious condition. He says, oh, I, my, I, my father had too much uh, truffles and champagne, and sort of leaves it at that. And, and he also expresses eugenic ideas in relation to disease which don't make it into the final version. The line between heredity and contagion is blurred in Ibsen, indicative of much thinking at the time until, in the 1890s, Weizmann showed 
through his famous experiments with cutting off the tails of mice, that the Lamarckian idea of inheritance of acquired characters was not viable, and that there was a different hereditary genetic mechanism of trans transmission at work. And of course, this would be revealed through the rediscovery of Mendel's work in 1900. I want to talk briefly about George Bernard Shaw, the champion of both Ibsen and Bria. So it seems fitting to end this particular part of my talk uh, about just with some Shaw. So I'm going to talk about his play from 1932 called Too True to Be Good, which touches entertainingly on contagion and disease in its opening scenes and tries to show how infection actually works. The stage directions call for a patient, capital P, lying in bed in a tightly enclosed sick room, obviously trying to keep germs out. Next to her sits a monster, capital M, which resembles in shape and size a human being. And here are the stage directions. But in substance, it seems to be made of a luminous jelly with a visible skeleton of short black rods. It droops forward in the chair with its head in its hands and seems, in the last degree, wretched. The first line the monster speaks indicates the typical Shavian paradox. It's a microbe, and the microbe has become ill from the patient, not the other way around. Oh, I wish I were dead, it exclaims. Um, <clears throat> why doesn't she die and release me from my sufferings? What right has she to get ill and make me ill like this? Measles, that's what she's got. Measles, German measles. And she's given them to me, a poor innocent microbe that never did her any harm. And she says that I gave them to her. Oh, is this justice? He spies the thermometer. Uh, the doctor has left on the bedside table earlier and sees that the patient's temperature is 103. It's all over, the monster says, and promptly collapses. Shaw also gets in his customary dig at vaccination. When the patient's elderly mother begs the doctor to inoculate her daughter, the doctor at the end of his patients explains that Quote, it is no use inoculating when the patient is already fully infected. The mother replies, but I have found it so necessary myself. I was inoculated against influenza three years ago, and I've had it only four times since. <laughs> Shaw's play gets at the issue of containment that is central to so many plays dealing with plague, and we've heard lots about this idea of con control and containment. Um, it's very much about how, how to control the spread of disease. And this idea relates to the broader notion of culture in ways that I'll turn to now. But it's worth noting a further connection with Artaud here. The preface to his book is called The Theater and Culture. And it opens with the line, never before when it is life itself that is in question has there been so much talk of civiliz civilization and culture. He bemoans, quote, a culture which has never been coincident with life which in fact has been devised to tyrannize over life. In a little chapter in a guide for students of literature, Stephen Greenblatt asks, how can we get the rather vague concept of culture to do more work for us? Drawing on a range of thinkers from Bakhtin and Foucault to Benjamin Geertz and Williams, he says that to begin with the term culture gestures toward, quote, what appear to be opposite things, constraint and mobility. The ensemble of beliefs and practices that form a given culture function as a pervasive technology of control, a set of limits within which social behavior must be contained, a repertoire of models to which individuals must conform." End quote. There are punishments for straying beyond the limits of a given culture. 
not necessarily extremes like the death penalty or enforced exile, at least not so much anymore, but social ostracism, condescension, slights. He sees Western literature as, quote, one of the great institutions for the enforcement of cultural boundaries through praise and blame. Certain genres do this overtly, like satire and panegyric, and of course, Greenblatt's work is focused primarily on the early modern period, but nonetheless, I think he's got a general point. But theater consistently falls outside this containment model, hence the centuries-long anti-theatrical prejudice and the attempts to control and contain theater's danger through mechanisms like censorship. It's one of the ways in which the roles by which men and women are expected to pattern their lives are communicated and passed from generation to generation. Oh, sorry. Art is an... I missed out that bit. Art is an important agent in the transmission of culture, writes Greenblatt. It's one of the ways in which the roles by which men and women are expected to pattern their lives are communicated and passed from generation to generation. Yet there is a paradox here for, quote, if culture functions as a structure of limits, it also function as, functions as the regulator and guarantor of movement. And it is only through improvisation, experiment, and exchange that cultural boundaries can be established in the first place. Furthermore, works of art, quote, do not merely passively reflect the prevailing ratio of mobility and constraint. They help to shape, articulate, and reproduce it through their own improvisatory intelligence. Here again, Artaud's thoughts seem apt. In that same preface to the theater at its double, he goes on to talk of the need for an organic kind of culture akin to hunger, a bodily culture. Quote, the idea of culture in action, of culture growing within us like a new organ. He accuses humans of lacking, quote, constant magic in their lives because they are out of touch with the force of their acts. He says, it is this infection of the human which contaminates ideas that should have remained divine. I want to take this ideal of a liberating, purifying quality of mental and physical extremes, of plague-induced experience, and map them onto the experience of watching performance, the ultimate theatrical contagion yet whose precise mechanisms of transmission still elude us. Despite years of concerted effort, we still don't have any truly concrete data and definitive answers as to how audiences respond to live performance, what happens to them during the experience. Even if we could perform detailed brain scans on each individual audience member, what would that data tell us? Would it bring us any closer to that holy grail? And would science trump art by giving us such objective explanations for something so subjective and individual? So I want to think about this through the example of Charlotte Mew's short story, A White Knight, from 1903. Let's see if I actually have a slide. <coughs> there it is. There's Charlotte. Charlotte Mew, A White Knight, 1903. Three British travelers are on a trip to Spain in the 1870s. Businessman Cameron, his newlywed younger sister Ella, and her husband King. Ella is fed up with the, quote, rank modernity of Madrid and wants to explore the small towns of the interior to experience, quote, something unique, untrodden and uncivilized, she says. They decide to venture into Andalusia. As so often in Victorian Gothic short stories, the narrative is framed by an unnamed speaker who presents the story in the witness's own words, in this case, Cameron. Before relinquishing the narrative voice to Cameron, basically after the first paragraph, he sets up the entire suspenseful central incident in theatrical terms, saying that it might come across as melodrama because of its sensational machinery. 
So the core of the story is what happens when the three accidentally get locked in an ancient church and have to spend the night there in the pitch black. The silence and darkness are terrifying. They spend five or six hours in a state of extreme uh, blackness, silence and freezing cold. But it's the stillness that really gets to them. Quote, as time went on, one's impulse was to fight the sort of shapeless personality it, pre it presently assumed, to make a definite attack on it. Then, it stirred. The silence broken by a procession of monks chanting and carrying tapers, their chant suddenly pierced by a scream. The three watched the action undetected, becoming the invisible audience to the unfolding drama. They see a white-clad figure in the midst of the procession, a woman who, it turns out, is going to be the, the center of this drama. Suspense. <laughs> it becomes clear that this woman is going to be a sacrificial victim. As the monks move aside a large stone in the floor and prepare her to descend into it to be buried alive. Cameron begins to realize this as he watches, but he's so engrossed that he cannot move. He is transfixed by the performance. And it is self consciously a performance. Quote She had, one understood, her part to play. She wasn't, for the moment, quite prepared. She played it later with superb effect. He is watching an actor prepare and rehearse, not just perform the polished role, and the narrative charts the audience member's experience as intensely as it does the actor's performance. Quote, she detached herself with an inspired touch from all the living actors in the solemn farce, from all apparent apprehension of the scene. I, too, was quite incredibly outside it all. And he realizes with horror that his sister is watching something that is, quote, as far as the spectators were concerned, not a woman's comedy. They all watch as the monks arrange the woman's costume, uncovering her face, which appears like a lovely, quote, mask. She goes down into the depths beneath the stone, for which Cameron is not, quote, quite prepared. I can't attempt to make it clear under what pressure I accepted this impossible denouement, but I did accept it. This is largely because of her unconscious power over him. Quote, I felt the force of her intense vitality, the tension of its absolute impression. He's describing what Joseph Roach and Jane Goodall, among others, have explored regarding the links between mesmerism and acting at the end of the 19th century. Cameron describes her power over him as magnetic. She stood compliantly and absolutely still. If she had swayed or given any hint of wavering, of an appeal <coughs> to God or man, I must have answered it magnetically. It was she who had the key to what I might have done but didn't do. Make what you will of it, we were inexplicably en rapport. And I've just added the emphasis there. Um, he won't interfere unless he gets a signal of some sort. He simply recognizes, quote, her, her part, her claim to play it as she pleased. And he notes, quote, they manage the illusion for themselves and me magnificently, namely the way in which she seems to transform into a spirit or a shade. He notes that it's like a dream. Quote, the senses seize, the mind, or what remains of it, accepts mechanically the natural or unnatural sequence of events. The final act was the supreme illusion of the whole. I watched the lowering of the passive figure as if I had been witnessing the actual entombment of the dead. After more incantations and rituals and the extinguishing of lights, the procession leaves and the three trespassers are alone again in the silent darkness. Jolted out of his trance-like state, Cameron and his comrades try desperately to find the stone and eventually do locate it, but they can't budge it. They end up reporting the incident to the embassy, but are simply told to leave the country as soon as possible. 
The denouement to the story continues to reflect on the incident in theatrical terms. Ella, quote, hasn't ever understood or quite forgiven me my attitude of temporary detachment. She refuses to admit that, after all, what one is pleased to call reality is merely the intensity of one's illusion. My illusion was intense. Oh, for you, she says, and with a touch of bitterness, it was a spectacle. The woman didn't really count. For me, it was a spectacle, but more than that, it was an acquiescence in a rather splendid crime. On looking back, I see that at the moment, at the moment in my mind, the woman didn't really count. It was the role she was playing. Yes, this is the age-old connection between theater and ritual, which everyone from Schechner and Turner to Barbara has discussed. And it also relates, of course, to fantasy active fascinations with the Gothic, the occult, with seances, and with the revival of mesmerism. Indeed, it seems to express Mesmer's idea of animal magnetism, even to the word, word magnetic. But it goes beyond that into something quite prescient, namely attempting to capture, even simulate, the inner consciousness and precise emotional states of the onlooker, to convey a sense of how the brain is working under the presence of an actor and the watching of a performance. The story seems to me an early instance of documenting what we might now call mirror neurons, the ES, or embodied simulation, that Rizzolatti and Galesi and others have argued for, presenting a new model of intersubjectivity, just what um, Nicholas Arnold was talking about today. <coughs> we feel what the other person is feeling, and in this story it is intense. The minds of Cameron and the woman he is watching are locked together in this telepathic, transferable way, just again what we heard in the last session, as if his brain is responding directly to stimuli from hers. And it's no notable that mirror neurons, of course, are as yet still under discussion and investigation. They have their proponents and their detractors. So here is another moment in the history of science and culture when the jury is out. And you could throw epigenetics into that mix as well. So I finally want to end by, by talking about um, how this leads to yet another meaning of the term contagion, a term I'm sure you are heartily sick of by, by this time of the end of the conference. And that is the idea of contact with another discipline. Um, and this builds very much. I had no idea would, would there would be the synergy with the previous panel. Um, but it builds on that. So it's a kind of positive contamination exchange, a contagion, contagion of ideas. And in a funny way, we're right back to Plague, Inc., connecting the idea of recapturing the danger of contagion, so unmanipulated contagion, implicit in, in our toe with the formalization of interdisciplinarity that has happened over the past decade or so. The more we try to dictate the terms by which such cross-fertilization occurs, the more we risk losing the serendipity and unfettered, grassroots, organic, spontaneous discovery and enrichment that often comes with the meaning of discipline. Here again, the issue of mobility and control arises, this time in a disciplinary and institutional context. Along with the formalization and institutionalization of interdisciplinarity has been the emphasis and encouragement um, to, indeed sometimes requirement, to hook up with the most alien remote discipline you can find. Felicity Callard and Des Fitzgerald discussed this brilliantly in their 2015 book, Rethinking Interdisciplinarity. One consequence of this mandate is that we are discouraged from collaborations with so-called proximate disciplines, as if they don't count and so we lose out on the productive synergies such interactions often unleash. 
My lengthy example of the muse story is drawn from just such a proximate discipline, and so is my discussion of Greenblatt. So two of my main examples for this talk on theater and contagion don't come from the realms of theater and performance, nor do they come from any scientific or medical disciplines. Much has been written about interdisciplinarity, and among the three most notable discussions I've come across have been Barry and Bourne's Interdisciplinarity, I think from 2013, Callard and Fitzgerald's Rethinking Interdisciplinarity, and an earlier piece by Patrice Pavi in Theater Research International in 2001 called Theater Studies and Interdisciplinarity. Although their arguments are distinct, they do overlap in productive ways, and all seem to shy away from the fad for leaping to the most alien discipline rather than looking to one's close neighbor. But here's the thing. How close are theater studies and literature? We all know that they are remoter than might first appear with regard to the treatment of narrative within each genre, for instance, or the radical difference between enactment and reading. As any history of theater programs in the USA um, and UK will tell you, it's precisely because they are so different that theater broke away from English and established itself as a separate field of study in many cases. Maybe it's time in this climate of increasingly formalized interdisciplinarity to rethink what disciplines or knowledge domains or fields or whatever we want to call them really can illuminate one another, regardless of superimposed notions of proximity or alienness. The reason this is important, indeed urgent, is that it's not just about intellectual endeavor, but about who are the main stakeholders in funding opportunities, who gets to dictate the terms of mutual contagion across disciplines. We need both kinds of cross-disciplinarity, both the near and the distant. I want to end with one final example of an interesting theatrically-based mechanism of transmission, which comes from the burgeoning field of digital humanities. I started with a digital example, so it seems fitting to conclude with one, though they're pretty different. The book, A Global Doll's House, by Julie Hollidge, Jonathan Ballin, Fool Hedland, and Joanne Tompkins, uses the concept of body-to-body -body transmission to il illustrate the dissemination of acting techniques and traditions in playing the role of Nora. The collective cross-generational -gener knowledge of how the role has been portrayed on stage since 1880 has rarely been written down, mostly orally transmitted, and mo more importantly, as they say, from body to body through the use of images, gestures, actions, and the representation of emotional states. The authors realized that there was, quote, an extraordinary degree of interconnection within the production history of a single play. And this speaks beautifully to what Dickey did with Hamlet and the, that performance of the different, the history of Hamlet. Um, they go on to say all the major Nordic touring productions of the post-war period were interconnected through a chain of artists that reached right back through the blending years of the play's early history to the original Norwegian production of 1880. The author's analytic methodology is based on Franco Moretti's distant reading. So looking for forces behind larger patterns that emerge across broad periods of time. On collecting the data from dozens of interviews with a wide circle of actors who had played Nora, they discovered that certain physical tropes were passed down from actor to actor, perhaps via directors as well. Essentially, the role of Nora has been constructed by a rich network of actors and their histories. And in this case, there's a hereditary dimension as well, because Berlioz Ibsen, um, so Björnson's daughter married Ibsen's son. <laughs> and so um, there's this whole way, and Berlioz becomes an actress, and so there's a way in which that um, 
and I think her daughter then becomes an actress. So it's, it's this mapping of the hereditary, in the inheritance, um, in a very literal sense, genetic sense, onto an inheritance of, through a chain of actors uh, of this role in other ways. So uh, the author set out to explore their hypothesis that, quote, a unique tradition of embodiment transmitted through a chain of artists over more than a century could have imposed a set of unexamined normative assumptions about the performance of this single dramatic text in Norway. From body-to-body -body transmission and mind-to-mind -mind contagion to cultural dominance and containment is a mind-boggling journey. And it is one that maps onto larger questions about control that lurk around the edges of all the plays I've discussed and infiltrate seemingly every instance of contagion. We may be none the wiser about the mechanisms of transmission, but there is no question that, that if there is positive and productive contagion, theater is where to find it. We just need to make sure that our, our contagion isn't too regulated. Recapture spontaneity and serendipity, or else we'll find ourselves playing interdisciplinarity incorporated. <laughs> you, you have my explicit permission to start clapping. <laughs> and so uh, expansive and I managed to take in so many of the uh, periods and plays and performances and ideas uh, that we've heard over the past two days. Um, we have time um, for some questions, um, if you have some. When is the wine? <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind just asking you just to kick things off, um, which is around that idea that you mentioned in relationship to Ibsen. Um, that the medical seems to almost inevitably move towards the, the metaphorical. Um, there's a kind of like a shift that's taking place there. Um, and I'm wondering, too, about the context of Peter's paper earlier on, um, where the kind of the staging of uh, bacteria um, just didn't seem to work. Um, so there's this idea, it seems to be in both those papers at least, that almost theatre necessarily takes over the medical or the scientific um, to trade in a different kind of currency altogether, which is something to do with emotions and experience <coughs> and, and affects and this other kind of language that we've been talking about today. Yeah. So I'm wondering what you think about that in general in terms of um, kind of the, the stuff we've, we've talked about over the past couple of days, but also is this something that can be historicized within that kind of Victorian view that you're looking at? Gosh, that is a really great question. Um, can, I, can I take one aspect? I'm not sure I can yeah. even begin to. It's sort of a research question, in fact. It's something that requires more depth. But one thing it does raise that I continually deal with is um, sometimes, I'm not saying all scientists are like this at all, um, but sometimes you get a, 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 um, an insistence on accuracy. With, uh, in a play about science, you know, that, well, the physics has to be accurate, the chemistry has to be exactly right, and the play gets criticized if it isn't accurate. And what I like about what you just said is, and what Peter was saying is that somehow the dynamics of enactment free the subject and the text up um, once it gets out of that control. And so often it's a misplaced criticism, in fact. Um, it's an insistence on something that would imply that theater is sort of a handmaiden 
to science and it's there to teach the science and if it's not accurate, it'll give us wrong information and so on. But it's two different sets of criteria at work and, and sometimes they don't speak to each other and sometimes, you know. So it, but that in turn is, it's important because of the stuff I was talking about at the end, which has to do with when you do work with radically different disciplines, when you do bring scientists together with theater people. Um, so it, it's just interesting when you look at a play like Copenhagen by Michael Frame, which wasn't by a scientist, but got its science right, and all the scientists you know, generally just loved it. There was just this real feeling of, wow, finally a play that gets it all right, and we have references to cadmium and you know, um, uranium, and it's correct. Um, but I think for a lot of us, so, you know, trying to resist that, it, that as a criterion. I don't know if that in any way answers. But it came up this morning for me with, with your paper about that sense of what happens when something goes through the process of being staged. Um, I mean, you can put all the accurate science you want in it, but it becomes something different. And I've argued elsewhere about the transformative, I mean, just building on Gillian Beer's ideas, really, but that sense of uh, that in the process of... Um, of, of becoming something else. I mean, that, that is what it does. You don't just represent the science, but it, the art helps it to become something else. <coughs> hope that makes sense. Yes, thank you. Any more questions? This is a really tiny question, but I was so fascinated by <coughs> that quotation and that story. And it made me think, oh, yes, yeah, so basically that's what Brecht objected to. Um, because the, what you have there is, she had the key to what I might have done but didn't do. And that seems to be a sort of perfect yeah. paradigm of this so-called Aristotelian theater, which you get completely absorbed in, and then as, as a result, you're sort of in this kind of limp state of spectation <laughs> and don't act. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just wondering if there are any other descriptions of uh, audiencing, if, if you like, that are like that. It, or or is, is that something you found that's Yes, I mean, there's a way in which I haven't even gone into the post-colonial dimensions of this, and the, all, there are about five other ways you could read it, and I, I think we, you know, that would be, it would be great to bring them all together, but, mm -hmm. but that, I don't know of other, it grabbed me because of that extraordinary length to which she goes to try to get at it. She just doesn't give up, Charlotte Mew. Mm -hmm. she, she really risks a lot, I think, by this very extensive, as you no doubt felt, you know, she, she just goes on and on trying to, trying to get at what is going on in the mind of the audience member. Um, and, and so I was intrigued by that, because mm -hmm. she could just have, it's as if that is the point of it, actually. And it displaces, in a sort of Brechtian way, actually, the, the, the death itself. Mm -hmm. It's not really the death itself as the drama. It's, the drama is what's going on in the spectator's mm -hmm. head, and how that's rendered. Um, so. I just think it, I, I would disagree though that, it, that he's limp and I, maybe I was conveying that incorrectly then because he's, he, it's like he's, it's like he's just, just transfixed but you know like a coiled spring yeah, yeah, because yeah. he's saying I would have acted if I had been given a sign but there was none so he's, he's ready to pounce and you know do whatever risk, risk life and limb but he, he simply is 
almost taking his cue, you know, going along with something because she's going along with it. Yeah. But it's, it's really, you've absolutely put your finger on that way in which um, I think we've, this has lurked around the edges of our conference, actually, Brecht and Artaud, mm -hmm. which you introduced in, in your talk, that mm -hmm. idea that maybe there's a sort of binary we haven't really explored and, and questioned enough. Extraordinary, and this this particular quotation and also that story has has some very explicit resonances in what I was talking about earlier yeah. about the idea. And I wonder whether you might talk a little bit more about the gender dimension of contagion, um, because there is there is a, a case involving a very briefly a Tanzanian uh, referred to as an exotic dancer in mm -hmm. uh, Oslo, who uh, was seen to be the source of uh, HIV or exposure to HIV for eight men. The public warning was to the men who might have been with her in order that their wives could be protected, the men's wives. She, she, they, they were denied their agency. There was no agency in the men. The women, as it were, and Elizabeth Gross says this in Volatile Bodies, are understood as the source and conduit of other men's dirt. But there's a really explicit way in which a lot of these um, stories and Sarah Porter, who was a woman who was convicted of HIV transmission, is described in the popular and the recorded press at the time as being a siren uh, who transfixed the men such that they were unable to put on a condom. <laughs> but, really, but it's really interesting. So the real way in which the characterization of this movement of, of disease between people in an intimate context is that, that women, explicitly women, in these cases, as it were, reduce the agency of men and responsibility of men uh, mm -hmm. to nothing. Because without them, this happened in the Greek cases around the, the sex workers in Athens mm -hmm. who were arrested. The men are erased from this story. It is very, very gendered. And I'd love to hear a little bit more from you as I suppose, as it were, the gendered dimension of this story. You talked about breast milk, of course. That's all I know. Very interesting. Fascinating. Explicitly that. There's a, there's a lot... There's a lot to say about that. I mean, I looked into, because I was so taken with um, Margaret Fleming, the fact that the critics went nuts, of course, because she momentarily bears her breast. 1890 in Boston. And the people who came to that play were, they were the converted. They were coming because this was like Ibsen. Mm. And yet even they were, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it, it was horrifying for some of the critics. But it must have been just you know, a second. I mean, really just fleeting, um, and of course not a real baby. So it, I'm interested in what was going through their heads, um, but I, had, I just thought I'd better look into things like um, the laws on nudity, and how there's, a, there's actually a whole article on how, um, showing how much of the breasts you could show and kind of tracking the, the development of the laws about this since about 1850 to, to now, because of the Janet, the Janet Jackson, was it? Um, episode. So um, anyway, so there are all these dimensions to it that, that do figure the woman as, you know, the, the locus of the, the contagion or the putting the blame on, on the woman again and again. So I think you're absolutely right. If too much breast is exposed, you know, you've in, 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 um, triggered male lust. So it's a kind of, we still, you know, we still hear that. 
You were, you were going to say something? Yeah, at the risk of being the scientist who's insisting on accuracy right. and etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think this is a classic case where the, the way that we portray narratives for public consumption on the stage, looking for drama, or in tabloid newspapers, whatever, differs from the reality. So I've collected data from, I don't know, 400,000 sex workers in three continents. And, and one of the interesting things that when you ask the questions about condom use and agency and why didn't you and etc., what's really interesting is that the missing link is actually the, the, the negotiation. That of women who ask their clients, this is female sex workers, we have the same data for transgender and for male sex workers and they differ slightly, but of women who ask their clients to use condoms, 87% achieve 100% condom use. And when you say, but hold on, wait a minute, you know, our, our data of why don't you use condoms is, oh, because the client doesn't want to. You say, well, that doesn't stack up. If the client doesn't want to, then how come he always does want to when you ask him to? And you'll speak to individual sex workers who say, you know, I mean, basically, you know how lazy Indonesian men are. They're in front of you, they're hot to trot. It's like you say, you're going to use one of these, done. You know, it's like that. So I think this is a classic case of the the... the constructed narrative about women's lack of agency, victimhood, etc., clashing with women or the harpies who are transmitting this stuff in ways that absolutely don't mirror reality. That is interesting. Sorry. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I wasn't saying it was true. Yeah, you know, I know you were. Obviously, <laughs> you were. Was defending. No, obviously, you were. But I'm just saying it's really interesting that these are things yeah. that come out as tropes yeah. over and over and over again. Um, and no one bothers to say, hold on a second, do we know if this is true or not? But also, I'm in no way against science or scientists. <laughs> it's <laughs> mainly. No, 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 absolutely. That's part of my impulse for even beginning to look into science and, and theatre was because I come from a family of scientists and because I really got interested in these, these plays that, that, that were actually gripping people's imagination across all kinds of... Yes, I guess you'd have to be... Generally, you're a well-educated audience member if you go to a play like Copenhagen. Um, on the other hand, I remember seeing a production... This was a production, you know, it was staged in a kind of tribunal way so that it, it demonstrated the uncertainty principle. It demonstrated the fact that watching or trying to measure something, you, you change the position and momentum of the thing. So the act of observation changes the thing being observed. And that was beautifully done in the staging because they had some people sitting in the kind of tribunal seats on the, on the stage. So audience watching audience, watching thing. And there was a group of French um, school, school kids um, who had the tribunal seats. <laughs> and this was classic. They were just making a lot of noise and being really disruptive. And there they were on the stage. And, uh, and the actor playing board, I mean, they, he has to memorize it's like hundreds of lines. And he just broke character. He said, will you please shut up? <laughs> and uh, it was just such a really fascinating, you know, just fascinating moment that interrupted that, that act that was going on that kind of, when you look at en rapport, the way the audience, the, the place, or depends on that dynamic. Sorry, I just thought I'd give that little anecdote. Could, could I add something about this question of female agency and disempowerment? There's, there's a famous late 19th century poisoning case in England where a young woman was accused of poisoning her husband by him drinking chloroform. And, as the defense pointed out, uh, chloroform is corrosive. And you couldn't, you simply couldn't, even if you poured it down your throat, 
gets under in chloroform. And one of the prosecution's insistences was that she was young and beautiful, he'd always been besotted by her, and therefore she bewitched him mm. into a condition where this corrosive liquid could be poured down his throat. And in addition, the defense did not let her participate in the trial. They did, insisted she would not be, be called as her own defense witness. She sat there with no agency whatsoever while the male leading defense barrister got her off through his potency and capacity. When, when was it? What year? Uh, late 1818, it was after the Married Women's Property Act because the question was, oh, what yeah. she done in Northern, but that's 1882. Three. Okay. I think it was 1890 something. Right. Um, I don't remember more about it. Yeah, That's fascinating because they're sort of around the same, yeah. around the same time. And chloroform is a kind of big thing about. Yeah. Both being poisonous and corrosive, but also helping, helping with, with surgery. Yeah, interesting. Mm. We might draw things to an end. <laughs> That's okay with you. Um, thank you so much for that trip and final keynote. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's okay to clap. <laughs>